so good morning, everyone. Um, have you ever wondered why God, maybe his will and his ways can remain hidden to you? Maybe it's because of unanswered prayer. Maybe it seems like your prayers really aren't making it past the ceiling. Maybe it's because of um, dead end after dead end in the circumstances of your life. Seems like you're asking for the Lord's help, and at least from your vantage point, it just seems like he's not responding. Or maybe it's because of some terrible suffering that he allowed in your life or in the life of somebody that you love, and you just can't help but say, where was he? When? Dot, dot, dot. Why does it seem like God sometimes plays hard to get? Why does he hide his face? Well, apparently, in the culture at large, at least in some corners of the culture, um, divine hiddenness is actually becoming a very popular argument among atheists and those who are skeptical, maybe sincerely wrestling with belief in God. But, you know, the problem of evil is obviously oftentimes a common obstacle to faith in God, but also divine hiddenness. These issues um, are apparently quite common. Um, so one of the ways that the argument goes is like this. How can an all-loving and personal God allow for non-resistant non-belief? You can imagine some of these people with these arguments are philosophers talking this way, okay? So what is non-resistant non-belief? Well, the person has no objection to entering into a relationship with God. In fact, supposedly they desire it. So why would God hide his face or not make it clear to that person? So this struggle, maybe that sounds kind of abstract. It's often been portrayed in various kind of artistic expressions. You could consider just two here. There's a character in one of John Updike's novels who says, if God wanted his tracks discovered, wouldn't he have made them plainer? Why tuck them away? Why be so coy if you're the deity? Or there's a movie, which I haven't seen, called The Gray. It's a survival thriller, and the plot unfolds as a number of oil men are stranded in Alaska after a plane crash. So these men have to defend themselves against multiple packs of wolves that stalk them during a merciless, brutal winter. At one point, Liam Neeson, um, I think he's maybe the main character, his character cries out in anguish to God. I mean, you can imagine how brutal this might be if it's a survival thriller with wolves pursuing men in the Alaskan winter. So he's crying out in anguish to God, show me something real. I need it now, not later. Now, show me, and I'll believe in you till the day I die. I swear, I'm calling on you. unanswered prayer, seemingly, right at the moment of crisis. Maybe you can relate. Certainly we can sympathize. I mean, if God is real, why isn't it more obvious to people, or maybe even to me? And some so-called evidence can seem 
ambiguous. You can maybe look at someone else who's just so sure and wish you had that kind of certainty. Well, maybe there, maybe that was an answer to prayer, but maybe you can think of a natural explanation. Or you could wonder, would it have happened anyway, even if I hadn't prayed? Anybody relate to that? Well, our passage for this morning has much to say to us. Whether you wrestle with those things or not, there is so much here for all of us. And we're only going to study one verse this morning, John 1.14. So if you're not there yet, you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1 for the Advent season. If you've been here the last couple weeks, um, Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. So this is the third of four Advent Sundays, and our text is on page 886. If you are using a pew Bible, you can find that right underneath and turn to page 886, and you'll be in the appropriate spot in John's Gospel. So we looked two weeks ago at the first five verses, and then last week at verses 6 to 13, this morning at verse 14, and then Christmas Eve morning, we're going to look at verses 15 to 18. Okay? So... This one verse is part of the larger section that we're looking at in John's Gospel, verses 1 to 18, chapter 1, which is called the prologue. Okay, it's the prologue to John's Gospel. And at times it can seem maybe a little abstract, a little philosophical in places. The Word became, you know, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But with all of that... Um, mystery and wonder and how deep and profound it all is, its purpose, the purpose of this prologue, and certainly the purpose of our verse this morning, is crystal clear. Because John makes the purpose of the whole book crystal clear. Okay? At the end of the book, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says that this book was written so that you, you and me, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Christ is another term for Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So God wants to strengthen your faith, our faith this morning, or give it to you for the first time. If you've been wrestling with some of these things, and where is God, and he's hidden, you know, why does he make himself more clear? Maybe he'll give you faith this morning. He can do that. That by believing, we may have life in his name. He wants to give us life. And as Jesus says in John 10, abundant life. So, let's think about another passage that has some sympathetic vibration with the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning of the book of Hebrews, we read, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, speaking of, you know, the days during Christ's earthly ministry, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Sounds a lot like John 1, 1 to 3. He is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high 
So the true and living God is there. And he's not silent. He wasn't silent in the Old Testament times. He spoke at many times and in many ways to our fathers by the prophets. He is a speaking, self-revealing God. He wants us to know him. And he's spoken and he's acted in history and he's preserved those actions and words for us for the sake of our faith, for the sake of our encouragement. And then the ultimate revelation of the glory of God is the Son of God. If you want to see the glory of God, if you want to know God, look to Jesus. So Eugene read Exodus from Exodus 33 and 34. And Moses knew that the pilgrimage, they'd already been rescued from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, and Moses knew that the pilgrimage between Egypt and the promised land in Canaan would be a difficult one. And the most difficult part was the hard hearts that he was leading, right? We all are prone to wander. Like sheep, we go astray. Moses wanted the one who was leading them and leading him as the leader of the Israelites. He wanted Yahweh not just to send them, but to go with them. So he cried out, show me your glory. Please show me your glory. He had previously, um, just a few verses earlier, had asked the Lord to show him his ways. He wanted to know Yahweh. He wanted to find favor in his sight. So show me your ways. And then he says, show me your glory. And how does Yahweh respond? He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Show me your glory. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will speak words. You want to see my glory? Listen. I will proclaim before you my name, who I am in my essence. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. The one who revealed himself at the burning bush. Remember, I am who I am. So I'm going to place you in the cleft of the rock, and while my glory passes by, I'll cover you with my hand. We could ponder this further. I won't go beyond this, but just to say, notice that Yahweh protected Moses from himself by means of himself. Anybody connecting those dots? Like that's what Jesus did on the cross for us. He protected us from the just wrath of God we deserve for our sin with himself because Jesus took it for us on the cross okay then I'm going to take my hand away and you can see my afterburners like you can see the after effects of me passing by can't see my face and live you can't handle it so Moses goes up early the next morning Yahweh descends in the clouds stood there with him proclaimed his name so show me your glory what does God do? He doesn't start like hurtling stars through space, you know. Moses doesn't see these crazy things, you know, galactic glory, just, you know, crazy stuff in space. He doesn't pick up the mountain and fly Moses around on it. He doesn't cause an earthquake. He spoke. Show me your glory. And he proclaims his name, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but also just who will by no means clear the guilty. So there are a number of very important connections between John 1.14. You might be wondering, why are we spending all this time in Exodus 33-34? There's a lot of really important connections between John 1.14 and Exodus 33 and 34. So my prayer, and may it be the prayer of all of us, is that we would be primed and ready to say, to pray, like Moses, with Moses, please show me your glory. Show us your glory this morning. Because that's what our verse is here to do, to show us the glory of God in the face of Jesus. All right? So let's read it together here. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So main point is really clear. If you want to see the glory of God, you must look to Jesus. If you want to know God, you must look to Jesus. So, what do we see when we look to Jesus? Point number one, the word became flesh. So we're going to take this kind of phrase by phrase, okay? First point is the first phrase. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So just, and the word became flesh. So Advent is all about the incarnation of the Son of God, right? If I say the word carnal, I mean fleshly. If I talk about a carnivore, it's a flesh eater. Incarnation, the eternal word, the eternal son of God became flesh. We can hear it so often, just like Josh mentioned, we can just become so comfortable with Christmas and we just kind of go through the motions and we need to see this like Abigail, you know, the wonder and the glory of it all. This is shocking. It's almost crude. John doesn't write, the word became a man, or the, the word took on a human body. The word became flesh. So to feel the weight of it, connect it back to the previous language about the word in John 1. In the beginning, in the beginning, this is like, we're supposed to think Genesis 1, the creation of all things, in the beginning was, it, was, it already was, the Word. And the Word was with God, alongside, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. He is the agent of creation, which shouldn't surprise us because What's happening? The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, and God spoke. His Word is the agent of creation. So, all things were made through the agency of the Son, through the Word, and without the Word, not, nothing was made that was made. So, that Word, that eternal, omnipotent, creator Word became flesh, how in the world is this possible? How does the eternal and infinite and limitless and immense and omnipotent and omnipresent and ineffable and incomprehensible and majestic Son of God in some sense kind of leave 
his father's presence. He was with God, right, in the beginning. And become located in the womb of a lowly peasant girl in the Middle East in the first century. How does that happen? How can the infinite enter the finite? How can the divine assume a human nature? Like, this is a greater miracle than the creation of the universe. Like, the, the entire universe, which is mind-boggling in its size and scope and just wonder, is nothing compared to this miracle. Philippians 2, Paul writes to the, the Philippians and he describes it like this. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God. He was equal with God, but he didn't count that a thing to be grasped, like held on to. He didn't have to hold on to that. He was willing to let go of it. He didn't need it. I'm just grasping this for my own comfort and, you know, advantage. He willingly emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Sovereign God becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he is the agent of all creation and he became a creature. He is the lawgiver who becomes subject to the demands of the law. He is the majestic king of the universe who became a servant and even a slave. He's the author of life and he became subject to death. Now, just a quick word maybe to be clear on our theology here. The incarnation does not mean that the word ceased to be what he was before. He remained the infinite, unchangeable, eternal son of God. He did not cease to be what he was. He took on that which he was not. The Son of God became, this is crazy, the Son of God became a member of the human race. That being said, conceived of the Holy Spirit, he is the head of a new race. Jesus was not in Adam he is the second Adam. This becoming flesh, this, the incarnation, is the first creative act of the new creation. Like, aren't you looking forward to the day when Jesus is going to return and make all things new? This is where it begins. And then, because of his work on the cross, it is finished. We can be made new. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So if all things are going to be made new, the eternal word must first become flesh. And the crazy wonder of it all reveals God's glory. Like again, if you want to see the glory of God, look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, what do we see? We see a God who would go to incomprehensible lengths to rescue us. What do we see? What, 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 what's behind? Like the ultimate, like behind all of this creation, what is ultimate reality? A God 
who would go to incomprehensible lengths to rescue and love and save us. So in 1961, Yuri Gagarin, a Russian cosmonaut, became the first man to go into space and come back. And atheism was the official doctrine of the Soviet Union at the time. Some say that during the space flight, Gagarin said, I don't see any God up here. I'm sure he said that in Russian. I don't speak Russian. Um, others say that it was actually Khrushchev that made this statement later in a speech saying, Gagarin flew to space but didn't see any God there, regardless of who said it. C.S. Lewis was still alive, and in February 1963, he published an essay called The Seeing Eye. And I saw a thing by Tim Keller that directed my attention here, and so I kind of looked this thing up. And so in this essay, C.S. Lewis says, the Russians, I am told, report that they have not found God in outer space. Looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play, but he's never present in the same way as Falstaff or, Falstaff or Lady Macbeth. Those are characters, if you're not familiar with Shakespeare, you know, okay. Now, of course, Lewis writes, this is only an analogy. I'm not suggesting at all that the existence of God is as easily established as the existence of Shakespeare. My point is that if God does exist, he's related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. If God created the universe, he created space-time. To look for him as one item within the framework, which he himself invented, is nonsensical. How then, it may be asked, can we either reach or avoid him? In our own time and place, this was true in Lewis's day, it's certainly true in ours as well, avoiding God is extremely easy. Avoid silence, avoid solitude, avoid any train of thought that, head, that leads off the beaten track, concentrate on money, sex, status, health, and above all, on your own grievances. Keep the radio on or the podcast, or the 24-7 news cycle, or whatever. Live in a crowd, use plenty of sedation. If you must read books, select them very carefully, but you'd be safer to stick to the papers. Maybe we'd update that to social media. About the reaching, he says, I am a far less reliable guide. This is because I never had the experience of looking for God. There's actually a book about his conversion called The Most Reluctant Convert. It was the other way round. He was the hunter, or so it seemed to me, and I was the deer. Space travel really has nothing to do with the matter, speaking of the Russians. To some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely to find him in space. And then he says, hang it all. We're in space already. Every year we go a huge circular tour in space. But send a saint up in a spaceship and he'll find God in space as he found God on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. Speaking of C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers was a friend of his. She was a masterful writer as well and she wrote a set of mysteries about a fictional detective named Lord Peter Whimsey. And about halfway through the stories, a love interest shows up named Harriet Vane. Lord Peter Whimsey is very lonely, but then Harriet shows up and they fall in love and live happily. 
after, 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 yeah. That means ever after, okay. Um, so apparently there are experts on Sayer's work that believe she wrote herself in to her own stories. She looked into this world she had created, this character she created. He's lonely, she loved him, she wrote herself in to save him. So, of course, of course, of course, the analogy breaks down many places, but that is, in a sense, what God has done, and that's what the incarnation is about. He created us, and he looks at us, and he sees us in dire straits, and he loved us enough to write himself in. The word became flesh. That's the incarnation. Jesus Christ, the creator God, the eternal word became flesh to love and save us. Please show us your glory. The word became flesh. That is glorious and wonderful beyond our comprehension and worthy of our continual contemplation and wonder and gratitude and praise. Okay? So what happened when the word became flesh? So point number one, the word became flesh. Point number two, the word dwelt among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So remember, the prologue of John's gospel is like the entire gospel narrative kind of, you know, in this dense, concentrated form. And then it gets unpacked throughout the rest of the 21 chapters. This is not just a simple pedestrian way of saying, he walked among us on earth. John uses a word that's intended to like elicit all kinds of associations when we read it, when we hear it. Literally, this reads, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Pitched his tent among us. And this is not a generic camping metaphor, okay? Even if, you know, we like camping. So this is actually supposed to take our minds back to Exodus 33, that context. So the tent of meeting was where God would speak to Moses face to face. The tabernacle was the place that God would meet with and dwell with his people. When God was instructing Moses on the construction of the tabernacle, he said, Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Okay, that was the whole point of the tent was that God would be able to dwell with his people. When God came down and dwelt with his people, the cloud filled the tent, remember? Or the temple. There's visible evidence of the presence of the invisible God, the Shekinah glory. So when God dwelt with his people, you see cloud and fire, the Shekinah glory. It's evidence that God was dwelling there with his people. And even though that was intimidating for the people, it was a mercy. Think about it. God wanted his people to know that he was with them. And he even gave them like visible proof, visible evidence of it. It should have served to strengthen their faith. They could see his glory. They could see that he was with them. And ever since the fall, God couldn't just dwell with his people without destroying them. He being white hot holy and us being unholy and sinful. So he makes this covenant with Moses, institutes the sacrificial system in order to make it possible for him to dwell with his people 
without destroying them. So the tabernacle was the mobile temple, and then ultimately the temple replaced the tabernacle, right? So the purpose of this place, tabernacle and the temple, was God dwelling with his people. How can that be? Atonement has to be made. That's why at the center of the tabernacle and the temple, the most important thing is the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, an atonement made by the high priest. Well, if we flash forward to John's Gospel, chapter 1, and then oh, we move into chapter 2. What does Jesus say? After he makes a whip of cords and drives out the merchants and the money changers, in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the true and ultimate meeting place between God and people, sinful people. He's the temple where full atonement can be made. He is the visible expression of the invisible God, the Shekinah glory dwelling with his people. God wants to dwell with his people. And if that's going to happen, sin has got to be dealt with. So he is the sacrificial lamb to pay for the sins. He's even the high priest. He's everything. I mean, the tabernacle sacrificial system is merciful, but it was temporary. It was an arrangement that allowed for God to dwell with his people, but the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin ultimately, only provisionally, only symbolically. It all foreshadows the day when God the Son would take on flesh and dwell with us to make full atonement for our sins, that we might be able to dwell with him and he with us, even in us by his spirit, and then with us forever. So we can see how the incarnate son is the ultimate answer to our desire for God to show us his glory. Yahweh, the covenant, the faithful covenant God. Exodus 33:34, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is most clearly, ultimately revealed in the incarnate flesh of his son. So what we see when we see him is we see the glory of God. Point number three, we have seen God's glory. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father. So, Moses and the people, they saw the glory of God in the Exodus, signs and wonders. And then when the tabernacle was complete, Yahweh comes down. At the end of Exodus, chapter 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But remember, when Moses asked to see God's glory, he heard words, a name and a description. His glory was revealed by by way of words. Moses did, of course, see the after effects of God's passing by, you know, when he was in the cleft of the rock and then God removed his hand. But the real revelation of God's glory was in the proclamation of his name. And now, in the word made flesh, we see the glory of the divine name in human form and action. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. Precisely because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen God's glory. 
glory of the only Son from the Father. So with this as the prologue of John's gospel, it's in a sense like pushing us, compelling us to read the whole gospel with our eyes peeled. Like on the lookout for the glory of the Son. Revealing the glory of the Father. And if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, or even if you're not, you don't have to go far to start seeing this glory revealed. At the wedding of Canaan, chapter 2, Jesus turns water to wine. Crazy, wonderful miracle. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Or you could think about the official son in chapter 4 that he heals. Or the invalid man at the, at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. Or when he feeds the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch in chapter 6. Or when he walks on the water to his disciples in the boat in chapter 6. Or when he heals a man born blind in chapter 9. Or when he raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. He is revealing the glory of God. When you look at Jesus, you see God's glory. But then an interesting and a strange thing happens as the book unfolds from chapter 12 on. Yes, Jesus' glory is revealed through the signs and miracles, but it becomes clear that his glory will be supremely revealed, supremely visible, seen through his humiliating death and subsequent res resurrection and exaltation. Look at John 12, 23 and 24. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what's the hour talking about? It's talking about the cross. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I'm going to die, and my death is going to bear much fruit by changing many, many, many lives. So God has made himself known supremely in his Son, openly, visibly, publicly, overtly, plainly. And yet, you know, just think about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And yet there's still a sense in which this glory is, is a little veiled. It's hidden. So many people saw him and yet didn't see him. They rejected him. They most certainly didn't see the glory of the cross, the ultimate revelation of the glory of God. Some people saw that as weakness. Some people saw that as defeat. Some people saw that as the end of their messianic hopes. If you want to see the fullness of the glory of God, look at Jesus, and not just his miracles, look. You've got to look at the cross of Christ. John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I'm here to reveal your glory. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So the true glory of God is not seen in impressive displays but in humble, even humiliating service and death and merciful substitution. Him suffering for us. Why did he do this? Because of the goodness of God. Moses says, show me your glory. I will cause all my goodness 
God's goodness is at the heart of who he is. God is good. If you see God, you see goodness. And what is at the heart of the word made flesh that we might see the glory of God? The merciful, gracious, loving goodness of God with Jesus dying for you and me on the cross. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see that glory most clearly, ultimately, in the cross of Christ. So the surprise is that the glory is actually in the shame. And it's all for us. So last point, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the glory of the only son from the Father is full of grace and truth. When God shows us his glory, it's most clearly visible in his son, and the nature of that glory is such that it is full of, <coughs> abounding with, <coughs> grace and truth. That's what God is like. It's the nature of God's character. And he wants us to see it. He wants us to know it. We need to look to Jesus to see it. So this phrase, full of grace and truth, not surprisingly, is again directing our attention. Where do you think? Exodus 34. 33 and 34. So remember, Moses pleads, show me your glory. Yahweh answers, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you, proclaim my name. And then 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord Yahweh, Yahweh, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That phrase, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, its equivalent expression in Greek would be full of abounding grace and truth. So, God's glory is supremely his goodness, his abundant, full of, gracious love and trustworthy, truthful faithfulness. Leon Morris um, writes this in his commentary on John. Grace is one of the great Christian words, and it basically means that which causes joy. Joy to the world comes to signify goodwill, kindness, and the like, often with the notion that the favor shown is undeserved. So, brothers and sisters, this is a message for you and me, and it's also a message for the people that we know that think God is hidden. Is God playing hard to get? Is he cruel or aloof or indifferent in his hiddenness? Well, what do you see here? What do we see here? If we have eyes to see, we will get reoriented and we will resonate with old preacher who once said, we're not wringing our hands and moaning, what's the world coming to? We're rejoicing and declaring, look who's come to the world. So let me close with an illustration here. Um, so 19th century philosopher Soren, and again, here's another 
analogy, illustration that breaks down. Don't, don't nitpick this thing to death or you'll lose it. You'll lose the point of it. Um, 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a parable about a king and a maiden. So he said, you know, suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before this guy's power. No one dared breathe a word against him. He had strength to crush all of his opponents. And yet this mighty king was, fell in love with this humble maiden. So how could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness kind of tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she wouldn't resist him. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? Or maybe she'd just love him for his money and the power. He would never know. She would say she loved him, but of course, would she truly? Or she would live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life that she'd left behind because it was against her will. Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He didn't want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover. He wanted to let shared love cross over the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal, concluded Kierkegaard. The king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without forcing her will, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito with a worn cloak fluttering about him. It was no mere disguise, but a new identity he took on. He renounced the throne to win her hand. So imperfect analogy, though it is, this and even more, our great and glorious king has done for us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Lord, please continue to show us your glory. Amen? Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a couple songs. God, you are beyond our wildest comprehension and imagination. And yet you have gone to infinite lengths of condescending, stooping down grace and mercy to make yourself known and to make it possible for us to be restored to relationship with you. Would you please open our eyes to see your glory in the face of your beloved Son. And seeing your glory, may we put our faith in him and have life now and forever. In his name we pray, amen.